We're in a series called Life Hacks. And the idea behind a life hack, if you uh, are familiar with that, is a way to do something that actually benefits your life and makes your life easier than if you did it a different way. And so James is filled with incredible wisdom of how to manage and live your life in a way as a believer of God that will make your life easier and provide the blessing and provision that God wants for you. And so we're going to walk through some of those things. But I wanted to start by just talking about this basic idea that is really true is that basically most of the life hacks or things that we do in life, they don't work if you don't actually do them. So I can tell you an amazing life hack and you don't do it and your life's not actually any easier for having known that information. As a matter of fact, a lot of things in our lives work that way. We know the information, but if we don't do the information, they don't actually make our life any better. So I'm gonna be transparent with you and you guys can get ready to be all judgy with Pastor Mike and that's okay. It's June. For the past six months, I have paid for a gym membership that I have used this many times. So, with that card on the table, some of you think, you know, oh, go to Ramsey, Dave Ramsey class, you gotta get your life together, Pastor Mike. Yes, I do. Spending money on something I'm not using. Here's the thing. I like knowing that tomorrow could be the day I go back to the gym and start the process of getting myself back in shape. And I'm willing to pay $31 or whatever it is a month for that dream in my heart to keep me going that tomorrow might be the day I drag myself back over to that gym. Having just walked all around the hill country in Jerusalem, I know I need it. <laughs> it is without a question that I need it. But I like the idea. In fact, I'm willing to pay to keep the fantasy alive. But let me just tell you something. I am experiencing no actual benefit by just knowing that I could go to the gym. The benefit doesn't come until I do the what? The work. Until I go and do the thing. But here's the thing. We know that in life. We know that that's how it works. But oftentimes in our faith, we struggle to apply that same principle to our faith journey. But we know, we know without a shadow of a doubt that you don't get the benefit of a thing if you don't actually do or participate in the thing. It just doesn't work that way. And, and maybe you're like me, but, you, but many of us, we like to fantasize about the what we would do if. And we live in kind of a dream world of thinking about what would we do? And, and some of us dream like, you know, you know what I would do if I had more time? Yeah, I would do this and I would do that. I would get involved in this. I just don't have more time. You know what I would do? How about this one? If I had more money, you know what I would do if I had more energy? But I just don't have any more energy at the end. You know what I would do if I had more hair? No, wait, that's just me. Sorry. I was being vulnerable and I got lost in the reality of it all. Let me come back to you. <laughs> all right. What would I do if I had more? And here's the thing we got to talk about, church. Can we just be honest? I've been doing this ministry thing for a while now, since about year 2000. And uh, I've been alive for a little while now. And I have yet to meet the people who are sitting on a pile of extra at the end of their week. Who get to the end of the week. And you know what my problem is? I got so much extra time. It's like Thursday and I have nothing else to do for the rest of the week, no other responsibilities. You know what I'll do? I'll do all the things I've been dreaming about doing. I've yet to meet the, meet the people who are just sitting on piles of extra cash, who get to the end of the week and they're like, you know what? I'm so tired of playing and having fun. I, now I'm finally at that spot where I'll do the other thing that God put on my heart to do because I'm sitting on this. I haven't met that person. They may exist, but I haven't met. Where are those people? who are sitting at the end of the week and they have so much extra energy that they're calling up people and saying, hey, can I come and serve you somehow? I'm just sitting on all this energy and I gotta come and do something. What do you need? I haven't met that person. I'd be afraid of that person, but, but, but I haven't met that person yet. Where are all those people? You haven't met them. I haven't met them. Yet somehow we think they exist out there or we think someday we'll become them and then we'll start doing the thing. We think someday our life is moving towards that spot where I'll be at the end of that space where I have all that extra and that's when I'll finally go and do the thing or I'll 
give my resources to the thing or I'll give my energy to the thing, whatever it is. And so we, we live in that tension. And then we bring that thinking to church and to our relationship with God. And James writes about that as a life hack and gives us a little explanation. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'm gonna start in James chapter one. And I'm gonna just paraphrase a passage for just a moment here. Because I think sometimes we approach our faith like this is what this is intended to say. So chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse 23, anyone who listens to the word, dot, 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 and then jump to 25, he will be blessed in what he does. Wouldn't it be amazing if that's how it worked? That would be really easy. If I could just take like a, a, a redactor pen and scribble some things out and get the scriptures to say what I want, this would be a really good spot to start. Because I don't know about you, but I love the idea of being blessed in what I do. How many of you could, could appreciate being blessed? Right, and then some of you I gotta talk to afterwards, right? Right? And listening to the word, I can give you that. I'll give you that. The problem is that's not what James says we have to do to receive that. As a matter of fact, what he actually says is, do not merely listen to the word, uh-oh. And so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Do what it says. He goes, do not merely listen, deceive yourselves. He goes, anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like a man who, had his, has his, who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. He's implying that's absurd. He says, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever the scripture says there's a recipe to receive some blessing or provision from God, I usually perk up. I usually perk up and I go, oh, I should pay attention. I should get my highlighter out. I should listen to this recipe. And James is saying, hey, life hack, do you want to receive some blessing along with what you do? Then you have to not only hear what God has spoken to you, but actually do it. You see, the blessing comes with the activity. Just like the blessing of the gym doesn't work unless I actually go to the gym. The blessing comes with the activity. So let's break this down a little bit. Let's talk about James. James is an incredible person in history, probably one of the most significant people in all of history. And sometimes we kind of miss him in the crowd. But James is the biological half-brother of Jesus. So we got to establish a little something here. And I, I talk about this every once in a while. So if you've heard me talk about this, I don't care. It's funny. I love it. I don't know about you, but I have a sibling. Anybody have a sibling here? Yeah. And I just want you to think for a moment of what it would take for your sibling to convince you that they are God. Not only are they God, they're perfect. And not only are they perfect, they're going to die for you and then conquer the grave and come back. And come on now. I don't know. Some of you are really like trying to hold in a laugh right now. I got to tell you, there is not a thing on earth that my brother can do to convince me that he's God. I love my brother, but he ain't God. He could fly here without a plane and land in the room. And I'd be like, nope. CGI, CGI, what'd you do? right? <laughs> I think I saw some guy on TV do that once. Like, what did you do? CGI, right? There's no way. There's nothing he could do to convince me there's God. Now imagine growing up in a household with Jesus. And come on, you've heard this before. Can't you just be more like your brother? Imagine that comparison your whole life. To me, one of the greatest, greatest miracles in all of time is that James ends up a believer in Jesus. Because James grew up with Jesus. James knew what Jesus' morning breath smelled like when he was a kid. Right? James knew whether or not Jesus cleaned up his room. Like, James knew that. James knew what it was like to learn a trade with him. And I got to be honest with you, early on, James was not a believer. The scriptures tell us, we see James interact with Jesus. We see him in the family when Jesus goes to his hometown and we see them try to intercept Jesus from teaching and try to shut him down. We see James literally embarrassed at the attention that people are giving to Jesus and try to shut him down, saying, 
basically, hey man, knock it off. We have to live here. He's not a follower. He's not a believer. He's a brother, but he is not on team Jesus. And suddenly we fast forward here to the book of James and we find out something about James. James radically changed his position. He went from not a follower of Jesus to actually one of the most famous pastors of all time. When James writes the book of James, he is a pastor of one of the most important churches in Jerusalem. He's not out in the outskirts. He's in Jerusalem where all of the tensions of this new faith of Christians is popping up. He's the hub of the wheel pastoring Jerusalem. And he is so respected by both the Jews who, uh, who are there because of his orthodoxy, because he follows Jewish customs and practice, and by the Christian believers because of his faith in Jesus, that he has become incredibly influential. Now, a lot of times I'm going to get, have to get a little bit um, theological with you because we're going to walk into some faith and works and doing things. And some of you get tied up in messes on that. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to break some of that down for you. Um, entire books have been written about it from different opinions. And I'm just going to give you some of what the scriptures say and let you wrestle with that. But people will say, and then James walks into this conversation and says, you have to do things. And I thought I didn't have to do things in my faith. I thought I just had to believe. I thought all I was supposed to do was believe. Didn't Paul say, didn't Paul say, and didn't Paul say, and how come Paul and James are in a fight? And let me just tell you something. Paul and James are not in a fight. Paul and James are not in an argument. Here's how I know this. Because when Paul's in an argument with somebody, he tells us about it. Paul has no problem saying, I went to Peter and I got in his face and I told him he's being a racist. Knock it off. It's Paul, that's how he writes. I told John Mark, you're lazy. So I left him behind, <laughs> right? Paul does not pull punches. He's pretty consistent on how he feels about things. And we know that Paul knows James. If you go to Galatians chapter one, Paul's writing to Galatians and he's saying, hey, I, I, I became this follower of Jesus and there was basically nowhere for me to go and the disciples wouldn't take me. So I went to Jerusalem and I spent time with James, the brother of Jesus. He respected James as a pastor. I think Galatians two or three, he says, you know, I went back and I spent time. Basically, he says, James is the pastor who I went to. When I need to, he respects James. James is his friend. James is, uh, is widely respected. No one is anti-James in the scripture. So if he had beef with James, we would know about it. So let's start from the premise of these two guys aren't in a fight and they're not in an argument, but they're gonna talk about what our expectation is as believers of Jesus. You also have to recognize who James and who Paul are primarily writing to because James is in Jerusalem and he is writing to people who have lived their entire life in a churchy culture, going to temple, following the laws of God, obeying the laws of God to the best of their ability, failing and then trying to make it right. And these are folks that have now heard about Jesus and begun to give their hearts to Jesus. And then they hear this story about God doing all of the work and they get lazy. And they're church folks who are lazy. When Paul's writing, he's writing to brand new heathen believers who are living in places where they're doing unspeakable things, things that if I read them out loud, you'd be like, you shouldn't say that in church, except for it's in the Bible. And they're living radical, crazy lives. And their idea of worship is not what we consider worship. And the way they treat each other and especially women and things like that, their culture is just really tainted. And so Paul gives them this picture of a loving relational God who loves them. And they're like, that's amazing. What does he need us to do to make him happy? And Paul's like, no, 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 no. All those other things you thought religion used to be that you had to do a bunch of things to make Zeus or whoever happy aren't the things. He did the work to connect and love you. You don't have to do something to do that. So he's writing to that crowd because they're saying, what do we got to do? Do we got to sacrifice a bull? Do we got to throw a kid off a rock? What do we got to do? Right? And they're, they're like, he's like, no, no, no. He's like, well, let's just be honest. We're in church. Let's talk about this, right? Do we got to get circumcised? He's like, no, it's probably not going to help. If the cross accomplished everything, then you don't have to do anything else to be right with God. And that's what Paul's talking about. That's why in Ephesians, what he says he says, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this isn't from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. He's saying, God provided this for you. 
So you don't have to now do something to make sure he's not angry and going to splat you off the world. He's not angry. He loves you. He's gifted you this through grace. You just have to believe and receive. He's talking to a heathen culture. Now, here's the thing, though. We like to stop reading it right here. But what does he say happens next? He goes, for we're God's workmanship. We like that, right? Created in Christ Jesus. We like that. But we skip over this. To do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. He says, listen, you don't have to do something to receive what God's done for you. But because you've received what God's done for you, understand he designed you like a masterpiece to do incredible things. And you get to do those things. Do you hear the crowd he's talking to? Do you see how he's not in as much tension with James as sometimes we think he is? And so here's James, the pastor, who says in James chapter one, I'm writing to the 12 tribes who have scattered across the nations. He said, I'm writing to church folks who grew up getting dragged to church when they were a kid, who grew up having to memorize scripture, who grew up having to, uh, having to do things that would, in their mind, make God happy. And now you have heard about this incredible thing that Jesus came and accomplished on your behalf. And guess what happened to you? You got lazy. You started saying, cool, let's go to church and I'll hear another story about Jesus. High five, thanks for the story. Next, see you next week. We don't know anybody like that, right? And so James is writing to a different crowd, different crowd, different prescription, different prescription, different take on what they end up needing. And he's like, hey, church folks, if you have an authentic faith, you cannot help but do the things that God designed you to do. He's making a different argument with them. Now, here's the thing I want you to catch. The Bible talks about faith all kinds of different ways. As a matter of fact, there's many degrees of faith that the scriptures talk about. I'll give you just a couple of degrees so you know that I'm not making this up. And some of the degrees, one is the Bible talks about weak faith. Romans chapter 14. Hey, if you're eating something that causes your brother to stumble, knock it off because they have weak faith. Don't let your liberty impinge on their, on their weak faith. There's weak faith. There's such a thing as weak faith. Some people have faith, but it's weak faith. I'll give you an example of weak faith since it's none of us in the room, okay? It, weak faith would be something like, I really believe in God, but when I read the scripture, I don't like what he has to say about, and then insert your particular cause, whatever your cause is. I like God, but I don't like what he has to say about, insert your, I don't like what he has to say about how I should handle my money. I don't like what he says about how I should raise my family. I don't like what he has to say about marriage. I don't like what he has to say. Whatever the thing is, is your thing that you're wrestling with, but the Bible talks about that. That's faith. That's just weak faith. That's not fully accepting God's word and who he says he is. And he says, yeah, there, there's people who just make their line right there. That's weak faith. He also talks about growing faith. The scriptures talk about growing faith. Hey, I'm praying that your faith will grow. You're in a process of growing. You're still learning. There's things that are out there for you and you just haven't got there yet. And so you have faith and you believe, but you're just growing and you're doing things right now that you shouldn't be doing, but you don't know you shouldn't be doing them because no one's brought that truth to you and spent time with you and walked you through that. But you're open, God, whatever it is that you're trying to teach me, I wanna be malleable. I wanna be clay in the potter's hands and I know that I have faith, but I'm just growing. It's a good spot to be. A lot of us are there. Trying to figure that out. You know, it goes on to say there's another kind of faith, though, and this is the kind of faith we want to have. Great faith. Great faith. You see the degrees of faith? Now, there's way more degrees than this, but great faith. Matthew chapter 8, an incredible story. Centurion, a Roman soldier, comes to Jesus and says, hey, my servant's sick at home. Can you help him? Jesus says, all right, let's go. He goes, ah, 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 I understand how authority works. You don't have to come to my house to heal this guy. If you just say he'll be healed, he'll be healed. And it says, Jesus was amazed at his great faith. Now, I gotta tell you something. There's a whole sermon in here, and I'm not gonna unpack it right now, but there are only two times in the scriptures that we find Jesus being amazed. Time number one, great faith. Time number two, lack of faith. When he's home and he's dealing with people who are like, isn't this Mary the carpenter's son, Joseph the carpenter's son? Didn't we see this, right? the Jameses who knew him from when he was a kid. And he looks around and the scriptures say he didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And he's amazed at their lack of faith. Do you want to know what amazes God? Faith and lack of faith. 
It amazes God when you believe he is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. When you step out on faith and say, I know God that in your word, it says you have the power to heal. So I'm trusting that you can heal. That kind of faith ignites and inflames the heart of God. You know what squashes out and diminishes that? (sighs) Well, here we go. God, if you do something cool, but not expecting anything. It's always someone else's turn to get blessed, but it's not mine, (laughs) right? That's what doesn't inflame the heart of God. So so faith comes in many degrees. There's all kinds of degrees that there's saving faith. There's all kinds of descriptive types of faith in the scripture. I just want you to catch, it's not a static thing. So James is about to break down to church folks. Remember who he's talking to? People who understand these principles. He's about to break down a little lesson on faith. James chapter two, you can jump ahead. If I read all of it, we'd never get there. James chapter two, beginning in verse 14. Let me break this down for you a little bit. Me and James. James says this, he says, hey, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Some versions will say no actions. Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister, this is beautiful, without clothes and daily food. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to them, hey, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, uh, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. I don't know if that one hits you like it hits me. But here's James, he's just saying, hey, if God puts someone on your path and you see their need and have the opportunity to take the action and meet their need, but you can't be bothered to engage, you don't have the margin, the energy, whatever it is, if you don't engage and you say, hey, I really hope someone does help you, God, go ahead and help them. He's like, what kind of faith is that? What kind of faith is that? He says the same way faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, it's just dead. But some will say, verse 18, well, you have faith, I have deeds. <laughs> this is a shot if you read it right. Because hey, yeah, you believe, but I behave better than you do. You believe, but my heart for people is bigger than your heart for people. You believe, but I don't believe, but at least I behave right. James says, well, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. He says, I'll I'll show you my faith. My faith will be on display. He goes, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, I can't read this without this picture in my head because I'm visual. I don't know if you've seen the Lion King. Come on now, when they say Mufasa and they're like, ooh, Mufasa, ooh, right? I just ruined this scripture for you because every time you read it for the rest of your life, you're gonna remember that now. But he says, you believe there's one God, good. Even the demons sit around and go, Yahweh, ooh, Yahweh, ooh, right? Even the demons do that. You foolish man, verse 20. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And now he's gonna give some examples. Wasn't our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that was his faith and his actions working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. If you don't know the story very well, it starts in Genesis chapter 15, but God tells Abraham, hey, you're gonna be the father of many nations, but Abraham's old and has had no kids. He literally says, come out with me into the night sky or into the night and look up at the sky. And Abraham's like, what are we doing? I'm like 90, I'm looking up at the sky. He goes, see all those stars? That's how your descendants are gonna be. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be like, excuse me, Three is plenty, (laughs) right? (laughs) Abraham's got zero and he's old, like really old. And he's like, okay. And the scripture says that Abraham believed God's word and that was credited to him as righteousness. And so throughout history, we've pointed at Abraham as the first genuine, clear example of what it meant to believe God, even though you don't know how it's going to happen. And so this church culture would know that's our pinnacle example of faith. When we get to Hebrews chapter 11, they start talking about Abraham. He's the father of faith is what we call him, right? But James says, that's not the whole story because you got to fast forward seven chapters, about 12 years of his life. And now there's a young boy, the only young boy. And Genesis chapter 22 begins with God saying, hey, Abraham, take your son, Isaac, your only son whom you love. Now, 
I don't know if God's just kind of snarky, but he could just say, take your son Isaac and we would already understand it's his only son and that he loves him. But God just wants to make sure that we're getting on the same page about what's gonna happen here. He says, take your son Isaac, your only son whom you love, just up in the stakes a little bit. He says, I want you to take him out up to the place where I show you and you're gonna sacrifice him. Now, I don't know about you. I got three and I still wouldn't give one up. Well, some days. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Cut that from the feed in case. I'm, no. <laughs> I'm just being real with you for a minute here, okay? If God was like, hey, and, and Genesis 22 opens with God decided to test Abraham's faith. Now, here's what's incredible about how Abraham approached that. He went to his servants and we're going to need some sticks, some wood. We're going up. We're going we're gonna to do a sacrifice. And then he grabs the boy and he tells the servant, he says, listen, me and the boy are going up on the hill to worship. And there's a whole other sermon right in there. I don't know why sometimes we call it sacrifice when God means that's worship. You know, when we take our offering, we never say, here comes the sacrifice, <laughs> right? Here comes, it is a sacrifice, but we have to decide when our sacrifice is our worship. And we got to start framing sacrifice as worship because the whole kingdom works because people worship. Everything on earth here works when people worship and give and sacrifice. We'll get to there, but I just want you to catch that. Somehow there, there's a whole thing right there. And James, that's what I'm talking about, says, listen, you know that what happened in Abraham's life was because he believed God, but you also know that got put to the test and it got acted. And the reason that you're so impressed with Abraham isn't just because you heard that he believed God, but because you saw what that belief looked like in his life. And that's why you believe that he's a great model of faith. If you didn't have the actions with it, you wouldn't even know that story. He says, so you're dishonest if you don't think that those two things go together. Verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see, a person's justified by what he does and not just by faith alone. Those two things work together. <clears throat> Verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab. And I love this. He goes from Abraham, the father of their faith to Rahab, a prostitute. You couldn't go to further extremes for church folks. Wasn't even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions. And then he drops this bomb. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so, without, so faith without deeds is dead. Now the word for dead there, necros, literally means a corpse. So he says, a body without a spirit doesn't move, just like faith without action, it doesn't move. It's just a shell meant to hold something. He's like, there's something more that has to happen there. There's nothing there to, to, to do anything. It's just dead. You see, he, he outlines some other degrees of faith. I don't know if you caught this, but they're, they're pretty wild. The first one he says is, he's there's such thing as a demon faith. He says, yeah, you believe. Even the demons do and shudder. There's a type of faith that the demons have. It's a faith that, that, that is authentic, it's real, but it seem, simply says, yeah, I believe, I just don't care. And you've known people with that. They say, yeah, I don't, I, sure, yeah, I, I assume there, there's a God, whatever, but I just don't care. I just don't care. I believe. I'll deal with it when I'm face-to-face -face with him. I'm not afraid, whatever, I don't care. He says there's a kind of faith that's a demon faith. He also says there's a dead faith. There's a dead faith. And this is the faith that says, yeah, I believe, but I kind of expect that I get a free pass on having to do anything about it, right? I don't have to take any action. I believe, but I don't feel, I can walk past the thing God puts in me and it's not a big deal. He says, hey man, that's a dead, path, a dead faith. And then he says, there's also a doer faith. There's a doer faith. And that's a faith of someone who believes they're a partner and that God has a plan for them and that they have a purpose. When James is talking about faith, he's saying, I don't mean a dead faith. I don't mean a demon faith. He said, there's a doer faith. There's a faith that's connected to action. And here's the thing. He's not saying you're saved by your works. He's saying you're saved to do works. Similar to what, what Paul said. You're saved, that you're not saved by the things that you do, but because you're saved, this is the behavior that comes out of you. You don't work yourself into faith. Faith works itself out in you. Here's the thing, 
just like everything else. It just doesn't work if you don't do it. It just doesn't work if you don't do it. So we have to ask ourselves, what kind of faith do we have? What kind of faith do we have? The life hack today is to have a, a, a doer faith. So let me give you some, just two steps to have a doer faith. Very simple. First one is this, step up. A doer faith has to step up. See, early on, we read that there was a promise of being blessed in what you do, and you want that, then you've got to step up. Step into what God's called you to do. What are the good deeds he's designed you for? What are the things the scriptures called you to do? What are the opportunities that you've had to serve? What are the places where you've said, well, I just didn't have the time. I didn't have the margin. I fantasized about it, but I can't do it because I didn't do it. And God's saying, hey, how are you going to carve time to do the thing I've designed you to do? In chapter one, James says that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James, the great pastor, is saying the way we exercise our faith, the religion thing we do, the steps that we do, is we have a heart to serve people and we avoid contaminating our life with things that pull us away from the heart of God. That's what that looks like. Here's the thing that's really hard, I think, sometimes for us to, to get our minds around until we say it out loud and then we recognize it. The very nature of God our Father is that of a giver. He's a giver. He breathes life into things. He gives life to things. He gives. Well, sometimes we have a hard picture of God. But here's the thing. The scripture that we know the most about God from is John 3, 16. And it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. And we read that all the time and we talk about this incredible heart for God for his people and how much he loves and we know that he's a lover, but we forget that it manifested in itself. That love took action. He didn't just hypothetically think about love. He literally gave. It took action. God's a giver. And the more we become like him, the more we find ourselves wanting to give. The more mature, the more we go on this journey, the farther we get, the more our faith goes from a growing faith, come on now, to a great faith. The more we become like him, the more we just find ourselves wanting to give. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but there's been many times where I've thought, man, I really wish that I could give. Whether it was financially, time, resource, whatever. And it just, oh, it almost like hurt in my soul that I wasn't positioned there. I started thinking about all my bad life choices up to this point so that I didn't have the margin, the resource, whatever it is. Why? Because the more we become like the Father, the more it just gets in our heart to be givers. We were designed, here's the problem we were created in the image of God. And in his core and in his nature, he's a giver. And so we're behaving like our Creator. When we do that, we're designed to give. In Ephesians, Paul warns us and says it this way, Ephesians 5. He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, and make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. What is he saying? He's saying the days are evil and they're gonna try to snatch all of the opportunities and time and resources away from you so that you can't be wise and do the thing that God's called you to do. And I don't know what the thing God called you to do. I'm not being uh, judgmental. I'm not looking at you and saying, this is the thing you're dropping the ball. I'm just telling you, the scripture says, we're designed to be givers. We're designed to partner. We were designed for a purpose. We're designed to do good works and that the days are evil and try to rob that from us. And so we have to be wise and intelligent so that we don't get to a place where we miss that. This is understand what the Lord's will is. Now, this is a hard truth, but it's just true. The kingdom of God works because people sacrifice. It's about priorities. All of the things here work and happen because people sacrifice. It's about priorities. I was thinking about just my story and how I came to know the Lord. And there was a gal, a girl, and her name was Elaine. And she invited me to church. Now, let me back up for a second. I was not the prototypical church kid that you would want to invite to church. The likelihood of me going to church versus me ridiculing you through all of our adolescence for being a church person was very much more likely that I would be that punk that would just make fun of you rather than that person who would be like, yeah, sure, I'll go to church. But Elaine took a risk. She made a sacrifice. 
And she said, I'm going to risk my reputation and I'm going to risk the mockery of this boy and his influence and I'm going to invite him. Now, she was strategic or lucky or God was involved. All of those things are probably true. And she asked me in front of my moms, so I couldn't tease her. Then my moms would, you know, she's pretty Puerto Rican. She would have just whacked the tease right out of me. And she said, wait a second. You can be somewhere else besides running around the neighborhood, like on Wednesday nights and stuff. You're going. And I was like, no, I ain't going. That's like nerds go there. That's all I know. And I think they eat goldfish or something. I don't know what they do there, right? Like live goldfish. Like, I don't know what happens at church. I think I had like this picture of cheesy church camp kids. That's all I knew. I didn't know what they did there. I said, I ain't going. There's no way. And she goes, yeah, you're going because I want you out of the house <laughs> and out of the neighborhood. She goes, all right, you're going three times. And if you hate it after three times, I'll never make you go again. So I show up at this church and I'm in this place in San Antonio, California. And I'm in this building. You know why this building's there? Because somebody sacrificed. Because somebody gave. They gave money. They gave time. They gave the sweat of their brow. They gave their talents, their resources. And there's a building there. And I show up and there's a youth pastor there. Now he's part-time. This is a little small church. And they're paying him. I know this now, but I didn't know it at the time. They're paying him $500 a month to move his entire family from one state to another to come be a part-time youth pastor. Somebody sacrificed, somebody gave, somebody seeded that $500, and then someone else had to sacrifice because come on now, accepting $500 a month and moving your family is something. And somebody sacrificed. I had to sacrifice and listen to this guy play guitar and sing because he was awful. <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> and I sat in a chair, just like you're sitting in a chair that was there because someone gave because someone sacrificed, because someone seated the kingdom, because someone believed. And I heard the truth about God's love for me and my identity in him and a father's love that was available that I'd never seen before because somebody sacrificed, because somebody put time and listened to the voice of God, prepared a message and shared that because somebody did that for me. And I got involved in a small group with some other kids that also sacrificed and, and, and showed up. Do you see where I'm going to? We met at a house that someone sacrificed and brought snacks. And there was a story. And it was filled. And the whole kingdom worked because someone somewhere along the line stopped looking at sacrifice the way we see sacrifice and saw what Abraham said and said, this is worship. This is how I follow God and how I worship God. And they activated their faith. I heard one pastor say it this way, and I don't know if it's totally true, but I love the picture. It's just that sacrifice is movement from casual to radical. It's this movement from I'm here and I hear to I'm here and I'm in and I'm moving and I'm going and I'm partnering and I'm doing it. Now, I still don't know if I love the word sacrifice there as much as I would love the word maybe worship there. But it just activates our faith. The kingdom of God works because people sacrifice, because people worship. It's because people make time. There's not extra time people, extra money people, extra resource people hanging around just waiting to do it. There's people who make a commitment to say, I'm gonna live out and act out my faith as you open the door for me to do it. God, I'll do it. And the kingdom of God moves. I don't know how else to explain it to you. That's how it works. Explain it to you? I'm getting tired. My words are slurring together here. I better wrap this up. You step up. The second half of the life hack is sometimes you gotta step back. Sometimes you got to step back. What do you mean, Pastor Mike? You got to step back. Well, sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes you're so entrenched, you're so busy, you have so many other things that you don't have room to give your faith place to breathe. You don't have room to hear the voice of God. You don't have margin. You've got to step back. Sometimes what you've got to step back from is you've been stuck in some behavior. You've been stuck in some sin. You've been stuck in some things that have grieved the heart of God and created distance between you and the Lord. And you can't even hear his voice to know how you could step in and activate your faith. Sometimes we've got to step back. Some of us in the room, the reality is we've just got to step back. We've been walking in something that doesn't look like faith. We've got to step back. The author of Hebrews says it this way, and we're getting close chapter 12, verse one in Hebrews, he says this, he goes, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary 
and lose heart. He says, you got to keep your eyes focused on Jesus. You got to step out of sin and things that entangled you. And you got to keep your eyes processing on his heart and his love. And that way you don't run out of gas. I was trying to figure out how to word this and I worded it poorly, I realized in first service. And so it's still poorly because I couldn't figure it out. (laughs) By the way, that's amazing. Um, But here's the thing. If I don't do something, I don't get the benefit of that thing. That's the life hack. If you don't activate your faith, you don't get the benefit of that. James says, if you hear the word and do the word, there's a blessing, there's a provision, there's a benefit that goes with that. If I don't do it, I don't get the benefit. At the same rate, if you do the thing that you shouldn't be doing, then you're gonna reap the consequences of that thing that you shouldn't be doing and you're getting the benefits that you don't want. If I want abs, I gotta do what this little monster's doing. Get out there and crack off some reps. If I want the blessing, if I want the peace that comes with it, that's how that works. The life hack for us today is I want you to get the benefit. I want you to get the benefit of the promises of God, of the heart of God, of the will of God. And I can't give you the benefit if you just hear it and it never becomes part of the action and activity of your life. If your faith never gets activated, if nothing changes. Before I wrap up, I wanna tell you a little bit more about James because James ended up giving his life for you and for me to hear this message. James actually believed in activating his faith. And something happened in James. Something happened in James that radically changed his behavior. And we, we know that he saw Jesus, but here's what he saw. He saw what happened at the cross. He went from, I don't believe, to he literally saw the events of the cross. And post the cross, he saw his brother again, risen. And he could not any longer be in the camp of I just hear and I don't do anything. He had to activate his faith. Eusebius, he's the uh, uh, historian, and Josephus are two of the uh, kind of famous historians from the time when James lived, kind of post the scriptures. And they argue a little bit on how James died, but church history has mainly accepted Eusebius's account. Um, James is just, or, uh, Josephus is just a little brief and just kind of tells the end of the story, but not the whole story. Um, I found where someone kind of um, paraphrased Eusebius's writing in a way that makes sense that I can understand. So I'm going to read it for you so you can kind of hear a little bit about how James died. You just have to understand this is a paraphrase from a historian. This is in scripture, but this is what church history has believed about James's final moments. After a while, <clears throat> James's influence became so strong that even some of the rulers believed, remember he's in Jerusalem, which horrified the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, they became afraid that soon the people would be flocking to Jesus as the Christ. Somehow, because of his strict observance to the law, the Pharisees thought they could get James to discourage the people from actually believing. So they asked him to stand on the pinnacle of the temple at Passover and speak. Now, this is pretty cool. I took this picture. This is the pinnacle of the temple. This is the cornerstone. This is where James would have been as he came out on Passover to speak. There's another picture like this with me in there trying to like do a selfie and it turned out all crummy. So I gave you the good one, get my face out of there. But that's the spot. So I get to stand right there where James was when he preached that. It's pretty cool. I had some, where'd my photographer friends at? How do I do there? I try to like get the thirds and the light. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they asked him to stand at the pinnacle of the temple on Passover and speak. Apparently, James agreed. So they brought him to the top of the temple and they shouted to him from below, O righteous one, in whom we're able to place great confidence, the people are led astray after this Jesus, the crucified one. So declare to us, what is this way? Remember, they called it the followers of the way. What is this way of Jesus? Now, obviously that wasn't a very wise thing for them to do as James was ready to take full advantage of a wonderful opportunity like that. His words are memorable. Why do you ask me about Jesus, the son of man? He sits in heaven at the right hand of the God of great power and he will soon come on the clouds of heaven. Now the Pharisees were horrified at this, but the people were not. And the people began shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. 
The Pharisees, realizing the awful mistake they made, began crying out, oh, oh, the righteous one, he's also in error, right? He went from righteous one to also in error. You can probably guess that this had little effect on the crowd. So the next obvious thing to do was to push him down from the temple, letting the people know exactly what happens to those who dare to believe in Jesus. So they climbed the temple as the people shouted. They reached the top and they threw James down from the pinnacle of the temple, but it didn't kill him. He rose to his knees and he began to pray for them. I beg of you, Lord God, our father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He learned that from somebody, didn't he? Did it get into just his head or did it get into the actions of his faith? Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Well, this would simply not do. The Pharisees on the ground began to throw stones at him as he prayed. And while those from the roof rushed down to join in on the execution, and one of the priests uh, mentioned by Jeremiah the prophet shouted, stop, what are you doing? The righteous one is praying for you, but it was too late. One of them took out a club that he used to beat clothes with and smashed James on the head and killed him with one blow. Something happened in the life of James. He heard, he believed, and then he did what he believed. And because of that willingness to worship, to sacrifice, his story goes from generation to generation to generation and speaks to you and speaks to me today. Now, I told you I had a gift for you. So I have the ushers in here. I'm going to give you a gift today because I want to give you just a token of what James saw that changed everything for him. So I brought you something home. I was thinking about you while I was in Jerusalem. I was in uh, Bethlehem and there was a place there that was kind of owned by Christians, by believers. And we had a chance to kind of look through and see knickknacks and things like that. And I thought, what can I bring home to Celebration Center to you? to say partly thanks for sharing your pastor and letting me be out of town and, and just that I love you and I'm thinking about you. So reach in there. It's the one time you're allowed to reach in the offering bag and take something out, <laughs> right? And inside of there, inside of there, this is a cross. It's made of olive wood from Jerusalem. And so it's one of the primary exports. It's the thing that they have there and they produce. And, uh, and why did I get you this? Well, because I could bring this many of them home and my stuff, but... I was thinking about just this picture of what changed James. He saw the work of the cross and he saw the power of God on display and he no longer could be passive. He couldn't have a demon faith that says this doesn't matter. And he couldn't have a dead faith that said, well, I believe, but there's nothing I have to do. He had to move to an active faith. And that active faith, not only did it eventually cost him everything, but the kingdom of heaven grew and expanded. And we're here worshiping today in part because James, the pastor, stood up and professed faith to the point of death. Why? Because he knew the power of the cross. Because he knew the death wasn't the end. And because he knew, come on now, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was and is who he said he is. And it changed everything. So would you stand with me? I'm gonna pray for you. And I give you this gift just because I love you, but also I want it to do something for you. I just want it to be just a little physical, tangible reminder that what happened on the cross was for you. And it happened so that you could be released into your destiny to become everything God's called you and designed you to be and that you get to have an active faith now. And so for some of you, here's the faith that the hack is it's just time to step up. And I don't know what that means for you. I imagine it'll involve some sacrifice. We'll say worship. And imagine it might involve some adjusting your schedule, your resource, whatever that is in order to do it. It does for me every time, just like it does for you. For some of you, that don't mean stepping back. There's been some stuff, come on now, that you've been sticking around, some things that you've been holding on to that you know you shouldn't be holding on to, and it's time to just let those things go so you can be free to become who God's called you to be because you were designed for more than that. And the whole message of the gospel is that it's for freedom he came to set you free. He wanted you to experience that, and it's available for you. So my prayer is that this would just be a little simple reminder that everything that needed to happen for you has happened for you so that you can be who God's designed you to be. And can you imagine if as a church, we got a hold of that truth and it began to leak out of us into our families, into our neighborhoods, into this community?
if we began to be known as the people who actually believe what God said he can do, and then we go and do those things, if it changed our perspective to where when we looked out, we just saw, instead of seeing what the world sees, we saw what God sees. Instead of thinking what we could do, we'd know what God would wanna do and we just believe in faith and just do it. Can you imagine the change that that would do? Can you imagine what <laughs> the South Hill would be like if there was a church like that that did that? Why couldn't that be us? He did the work already. We just get to partner and do it. He's gonna do it no matter what, if it's his will. But if we wanna get the blessing, then we have to partner. I don't know about you, but I want my faith to have abs, even if I never have abs. Come on now. Come on, let's pray. God, thanks for your blessing. Thanks for your provision. Thanks for being the, the cornerstone and holding our faith together. Thanks for just your, your incredible love for us right where we're at. Thanks for loving us enough to design us to do something. God, I, I just think if you didn't leave us here for a purpose, you'd just take us home and that'd be great. But you didn't because you left us here to do something. So whatever that is, God, give us the courage to step into it. I pray that dreams would begin to come back alive right now. Dreams and calling and destiny and purpose and planning, all those things will begin to just come alive as we step out of faith and say, God, I wanna be a doer of what you've called me to do. I don't wanna have just a, a faith that says, yeah, I know you're there, but it doesn't mean anything. And I don't wanna have a weak faith that says, I know you're there, but I'm just not gonna do anything until I figure out how to agree with it. And I don't wanna have a dead faith that says, I, I know that you're there, but, but I don't have to, <laughs> come on. You designed us to do something. So we wanna do what you've called us to do. And we wanna see lives, we wanna see heaven get fuller because we did the thing we we're designed to do. And we want the blessing that comes with that. So thank you. Thanks for recalibrating us. Thanks for reminding us. Thanks for a pretty practical life hack. We just got to do the thing you called us to do. We appreciate you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.